This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 40 years now. They're an activist, solutions-oriented publisher focused on bringing you tools for a world of change. They've now published over 600 books available both in print and ebooks, as well as an increasing library of audiobook selection as well. They care deeply about both what they publish and how they do business, and so the same thinker and doer approach permeates their in-house work and the books themselves. A certified B Corporation, they print on 100% post-consumer recycled paper, and they are carbon neutral, and they print only in North America, never offshore. And that's just the company themselves. Most importantly, they've got the best selection of books that you need to build your own regenerative ecological or community-based projects. You can check out their full list of titles now at newsociety.com. Hey there, everybody, and welcome back. So at this point, I've covered a wide array of practices and management styles that fall under the broad umbrella of regenerative agriculture. Some could be considered traditional, while others are more modern and innovative, and they span continents, climates, biomes, and industries. Now, nonetheless, I've also noticed a pretty big gap that I've yet to cover in detail and that I hope to begin to fill in today. Dairy farming has been under sharp criticism in recent times. Scrutiny over everything from the appropriateness of dairy in the diet to the methane emissions of cows and the controversial practices of early separation of calves from their mothers to maximize milk production have all contributed to a diminished reputation. Now, though these critiques are very legitimate, what if there were solutions to all of them without the need to turn to non-dairy alternatives? Today, to explore these solutions is one of the leaders in regenerative dairy and a growing movement of dairy producers working to develop a new way of managing dairy cows and the pastures that they coexist with. Phyllis Van Amberg, along with her husband Paul and their family, are leaders in holistic land use, biodiverse cultivation, organic dairy herd management, and more. Together, they are dairy farmers in upstate New York and have been involved in key innovations in the dairy industry mostly in western parts of the world, reintegrating dairy cows as a cornerstone for ecological health and for human communities to thrive. Phyllis and Paul have also helped develop the grass-fed certification program with Northeast Organic Farmers Association of New York and Pennsylvania Certified Organic. In this interview, Phyllis starts by sharing her inspiring story of transitioning away from her previous career as she and Paul embraced a gradual move into full-time farming. We explore the intuition she had that much of the conventional wisdom and ways of doing things in the dairy industry were not really in the interest of either the cows nor the farmers and how that led them to rethink their own dairy operation. Phyllis outlines the key aspects they consider essential for managing a dairy herd regeneratively and the pioneering journey that they're on to make exclusively grass-fed dairy cows viable through selective breeding and holistic managed grazing. We also explore Phyllis's insights from her work helping large dairy operations in the USA and Europe to transition to regenerative management and the challenges and opportunities that the wider industry has to transform. Now, I was blown away by all of the areas of consideration and the hopeful outlook that Phyllis shared with me in this interview, and I know that I'll be exploring this side of livestock care and management even more in the future. 
But for now, I'll hand things over to Phyllis Van Amber. Welcome, Phyllis. Thanks so much for taking time. Thank you so this much a, for having this me. This is a conversation that I have been looking forward to for a while because you work with our mutual friend, Andre, on a project on the Azores Island. And yes. he has been telling me a lot about not only your work back in the United States, but in the larger dairy scene and how it's been a part of forming some new standards and even legislation in the United States. Yes. And in knowing that, and a little bit about your background. Why don't you tell me how you first got into farming, you and your, your husband, and what that journey looked like before actually getting on the land? Uh, I will I'd be happy to do that. I'll try to be as streamlined as possible because uh, it was quite a journey. Um, it really goes back to young adulthood, right? Um met someone that I wanted to spend my, met Paul, I wanted, we wanted to spend our life together. So started thinking about a family, but I was working as an occupational therapy therapist at the time. So I was working with preschool age children with developmental delays. And it was um, quite obvious that there was a very significant factor in um, what they ate, their nutrition. And obviously was very concerned about my health and now thinking about bringing children into the world. So it sort of started a whole thought process around the impact of not only food, but the, the environment and the conditions that we put ourselves in. So, so started to look for better food, started to figure out what better food was. Um, Weston A. Price Foundation has probably the best information on the raw, you know, on nutrition that is out there, in my opinion. And there are a lot of other really great people doing a lot of good work, but that really folded in even moving into the future to um, where we were sort of going with this, because the children that I was working with, they would, you know, don't feed them anything with red dye 40, or you'll have a bad day. And things like that really resonated with me. Um, to say, well, you know, that's, we, our bodies shouldn't be reacting to things that we eat that way. So we started our journey of, well, we'll put in, um, Paul's mother was a master gardener. We put in a big garden. I was more on the animal side. We got a couple of goats and we were milking goats. We were raising our own chickens and it started to get more serious. Then I quit my job and we bought a small farm. We started raising grass-fed beef then we were looking for a family cow. We were drinking raw milk. Um, you know, it just all of a sudden we felt like we were being floated down a river and we just needed to go with it. But it was getting more and more intense as it went. <laughs> um, there was a local there was a farmer. Actually, it was a woman who owned a farm. She was she was renting the farm that is our north farm now. Um, she wanted the barns repaired. That was Paul's line of work. He was a builder, a renovator. Um, but we were pretty entrenched in farming at this point, doing grass-fed beef. And we had two family cows. Um, and we had dreams of producing grass-fed dairy because we were producing grass-fed beef. We thought, we're so good at grazing. We can do this, you know. Um, and this person called to have the barns fixed and was ready to sell the farm. 
Um, it wasn't working out with her tenant farmers. And she asked if we knew anybody. We gave her a few names. And then we said, we know us. Why don't we? <laughs> um, and so that was our um, our first step into dairying. It was an organic dairy. We fed grain. We just took over as it was. Um, but within a year, we decided to drop grain. And we found ourselves... Um, producing, trying to produce 100% grass-fed dairy on a commercial scale. Along that journey, we were married. By the time we started the commercial dairy, we had three of our five children. And they were they were born into the life that we were trying to create as, you know, first-generation farms farmers. Um, and now, fast forward, the oldest, our oldest daughter, Grace, is 23. Um, she's engaged. Her fiance is not also not a farmer, but all in. Um, and then Vincent, our son, is 21. Maggie's 17. Oliver's 15. And Ruby is 13. They're all still here. Um, we homeschooled so that they would be integrated in the farm. We We had a strong belief that if they could be a meaningful part of something that um you know was 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 a real thing an actual working family that that would be better than um almost anything else that they could find outside of that um and they're they're amazing kids they're all just amazing kids um so yeah we start i let's see i was when we bought the dairy farm I was 37. Paul was, but would that make him 43? So we didn't start commercial dairying until, you know, well, well into adulthood um, and had full other careers before we started. Um, yeah, I'm not sure I got it all, but that's a pretty, pretty decent synopsis of where we came from and how we got into dairy farming. Yeah, that's such a remarkable <laughs> story. And I think that would give hope to a lot of people who are perhaps in the middle of, or maybe even on the tail end of their careers and dream of a lifestyle like this, working more closely to the land, producing more of their own food, however the scale of that might look. But it seems like you did what a lot of people would recommend, which is try out a couple of smaller enterprises and allow it to grow as you were able to build the capacity for it, ease into leaving one career and getting into this one as it was feasible, rather than you know selling everything, abandoning it, and going all in. <laughs> You know, there's people who do that, too. And I'm curious what the transition from mostly producing pasture raised beef and going into dairy, because though they are similar animals, it is by no means a similar enterprise or a management way of doing that. How was what you learned from managing the cattle in the beginning compatible or different from what you found, especially since you started in a more conventional way? Yes. Um, so the the idea that um, being a skilled grazer in beef production, even for finishing beef and um, believing that we understood what it would take to produce grass fed dairy. Um, if we had known, if we had known, we wouldn't have done it. So it's a good thing we didn't know because it's it's such a huge leap. And frankly, the leap from organic dairy to grass-fed dairy 
is also, I, I mean, I guess it, to me, having been through college, you know, you take general, I took general chemistry and then I, I took organic chemistry. I also took, you know, the basic math courses and I took calculus. In those two subject areas, the difference between general chemistry and organic chem, they're not even, they shouldn't even be both called chemistry. And, and dairy, grass-fed dairy production is that much more complex, complicated, and different. Um, so the transition, it was rough. It was really rough. Um, hard to live through in this in that sense when i say rough it was very difficult to live through we did we did a bunch really right you know and we we sought advice from the best people we could find and we were good students so they were happy to teach um and without their guidance we certainly would not have made it but um gerald our dear friend gerald fry who has passed now he said, agriculture needs to change and it's going to change with people like you who are looking at it from the outside, I think. And that speaks to the magnitude of the shift that has to happen within agriculture, um, because you can make some pretty decent changes within any given industry. But sometimes it takes a real disruption to make a, a significant change. And I think that that's what he saw. Um and, you know, we used to say, I think this was Paul's term, he used to say, we don't suffer from an, from an agricultural education, right? Because the, the, the innovation comes at the individual level, and then you start to seep it, you start to see it seep into the industry. And, and then the education systems and the policy changes come after the fact, right? They come in response to those changes. So in a sense, it makes perfect sense, right? The the things that are being taught at the university level are the things that have already made it up through the innovation chain. Um, and I think mistakenly, a lot of people look for innovation at the university level. And I, and I do believe that there are people trying to accomplish that, but the, the constraints are great within that because there's, there's also um, a reflection and an interworking within the industry that sort of makes that difficult. It's the people that are actually willing to risk their neck um, at the at the production level that are going to make those, they're gonna be the first ones to, to do something. And then it might be taken up with a, you know, a brave professor who's willing to do a trial of something that he's seen or something like that. But um, so we tried a lot of really weird things and things that we were criticized for. You know, our neighbors, um, well, you know, this is our grazing plan. That's a plan. That was some of the, you know, and that's your bull. Um, and you can't do that. You'll go broke. Th those were the feedback that we were getting from some of the people around us. Um, you can't do that or you'll go broke. That was raising calves on cows, one, one to one. Uh, the dam raises her own calf. And there's so much research to suggest that that is, by far the best way to do that to match the the mother with her own offspring not even a nurse cow and let her raise that that animal and it proved to be absolutely true um but it took a lot of learning and experimentation and um figuring out you know people do that all the time even with their family cow but trying to do it when you're milking 50 cows and now while we're milking you know almost 200 cows 
figuring out again how to redefine, not redefine that, but recreate that in an even larger scale. Um, those Those are the things that were really difficult. And always, you know, putting absolutely every ounce of energy and thought and every penny back into making it work, you know? Yeah, so that's a remarkable shift in how most dairy is run at this point of raising the calf with the mother cow. And it's strange that that is the case, you know? (laughs) Intuitively, one would think that the... The milk from the mother was well of course it's going to be the best food we've had this discussion in plenty of realms for for humans in the past as well a formula is not an adequate uh, supplement however like how how do you think it comes about that an entire industry has gone so far away from something that is so intuitively correct and it's become a normal standard Especially because, let's face it, so many of these dairies are going out of business. It's not like it's working out great for them either. Like, where does this come from? It's the frog in the in the pot of water. You know, it's the same story. And when you look at the history of industrial dairy, it came out of a place of, um, you could argue it came out of a benevolent place, place to sort of um, make a high plane of nutrition available to every citizen, right? Um, if you have a, a dairy cow, it doesn't matter where you are, especially if you're in a food desert in the, you know, somewhere rural, or if you're in a third world country, if you have a cow or a goat, if you have access to milk, you have life. Your children will live, they will thrive. It's, you know, the absolutely nothing else compares. Um, And so providing dairy products because they they will bring a level of nutrition like nothing else in such a small package. That was really, I think, what was behind we want to um, we want dairy to be available to all. But that. At some point, it began to be absolutely run by an economic system instead of that sentiment so um there there is no cash cow and the the pun is you know (laughs) that explains where that expression comes from a cash cow there is no industry that makes money like the dairy industry I, i mean it can't even touch it the the income from at the farm level from a dairy cow is probably in the range of a, a you know, several thousand dollars, four, five, six thousand dollars in the US um, per year. The contribution per cow. per cow. Per cow. The contribution now, what it costs to to get that income, that's where the tricky right. part the is. The income is where that gross profit starts to get well. Yes. Sure. So on the one, right. On the one hand, you hear there's no money in dairying and at the produ- production level, there is not generally speaking, agriculture as a whole, especially dairy has been losing money in the United States for 75 years, but the dairy industry, that's a very different topic. And that same cow will contribute upwards of, of $26,000 per year to the greater economy. There's where the drive for that whole shift and the cow's 
living conditions, their diet, and the way the, the calves are raised, it all stems out of that. So on the one hand, at the producer level, the reason they, they became the frog in the pot, if they milked the cow, the cow has a calf, if they milked the cow and sold the milk and bought the manna and the grains and the other feed for the calf, they were buying those other supplements for pennies and selling the milk for dollars. It was a, absolutely a smart economic decision. And frankly, at the, at the inception of that whole process, they, we did a much better job with the calves to start. Um, but now you watch the whole progression of the dairy industry. Now they're selling their milk for pennies and they're spending dollars to buy these inputs. So it's completely insane, right? But as far as the industry is concerned, that process of selling the milk and feeding the calf artificial, you know, a, um, a substitute for milk, how much money is made within the industry? How many jobs and facilities are you, you know, cool the milk, pay the labor to harvest the milk and the equipment and the service on that equipment and all of the inputs, sell the milk, pick it up, bring it with a truck, process the milk, parse it all out, dry portions of it, take the fat out, reconstitute it, put it back together in a powder, in a bag, transport it again, all the people, sell it back to the farmer and spend labor to now feed it back to the calf. Now you've created a beautiful, you've supported another entire industry by selling that milk first before you put it back to the calf. When in truth, the farmer can do himself the most good by cutting out all of those middlemen and investing directly in himself and his future and using that beautiful, perfect relationship to raise the best heifers. The added layer is heifers are cheap. It will cost more in, in the lost opportunity cost of the milk to buy the heifer. It's still a very hard sell We've we've wielded the economics around in a way that makes the best option really insane economically, but mm -hmm. absolutely perfect in its truest sense. It's, it's fascinating. It really is. Wow. Uh, I had I, well, I mean, I knew some of those steps, but having it laid out like that makes it uh, all the more understandable. I'm curious too. Like maybe this is one of the more obvious changes that you've made in your operations since starting. Can you go through some of the other ones that buck the trend of the industry at large? Yeah. Um, well, yeah, we thought when we, <laughs> um, so we, we were very committed um, to raising grass-fed dairy the way we raise grass-fed beef. There was already emerging a lot of science around the, the omega-3, omega-6 fats in beef and we suspected that it was the same in dairy and it turns out it is grass-fed dairy the omega-3 omega-6 ratio is very close to one to one if not one to one um and you know we we stopped feeding grain and made the switch um also switching just the entire genetics of the herd um because along with the nutrition again the economics and the the economic viability of the of the dairy really shifted and that was an, another whole segment that we needed to learn so we were we were 
again, um, interested in feed efficiency per pounds of body weight of per cow, um, pounds of milk produced maybe per acre, where um, pounds of milk produced just straight pounds per square foot of stall space is the really the economic model. And that's the that's the definition of efficiency. We were looking at forage efficiency. How efficient is this cow pound for pound in turning forage into milk and fat, actually? So different, even just different ways of doing the numbers um, on the feed level, but um, also just trying to um, rethink how the cow's diet could actually be viable with forages only without grain because the modern dairy genetics were very dependent on grain. But so we did those shifts, we were making all those changes and we really wanted a market. We thought this is a very, a vastly different way to produce milk. We should have a vastly different market. Um, we were shipping to one of the big organic markets in the US, Organic Valley, and they had piloted grass-fed milk in California. And we we were we said, you should do this. Grass-fed milk is a thing. And they said, yeah, it didn't really do that well. It's not going to be a thing. We're not interested. Um, and then we met Tim and Laura Joseph, who were, they were selling their own yogurt as Maple Hill Creamery. And it was 100% grass-fed organic. Um, they had sold fresh milk, um, but in a, their local setting, the wasn't viable enough and the yogurt was a better option. So they were just doing yogurt, but that had grown to a point where they were ready to expand. The thing about milk, especially commercial milk is um, the only real benefit is if you produce it, the markets have to buy it all. It's, it's freight on board in the milk, in the bulk tank. So if you make it, you get paid for it might not be enough, but you don't have to worry about the sale of your milk getting somebody to leave their commercial market and go into to something, you know, this private guy just selling his own milk. Well, already we were the sort of people that would were willing to do that and we did. So that was the second farm to join what is now Maple Hill Creamery and has become a national brand. There's 130 farms in New York state that um, many of which Paul and I helped to make the switch personally um, and we're still involved in that market. But that was, you know, at the beginning of that, we were like, we're going to change the dairy industry. We're going to bring back the small farm. We were, we were again, very naive, but had we known, we wouldn't have tried. So, <laughs> um, but we wanted to, um, we wanted to bring back the, you know, we, we just wanted to be able to produce milk on grass which actually limited the size of the farm and and gave an opportunity to truly family run you know and there is a lot of really large dairies that are family run and i'm i'm not ever one to knock any any production because i've come to have an appreciation for all agricultural production that's another topic um but the true you know the the people that are milking the cows themselves and their kids are involved and it's a it's a you know probably less than you know four to six hundred cows i think would be a global standard for grass-fed production but um 
yeah, we we sought to try to really disrupt the industry, and and then through that process, over that was in two thousand and ten. So over the last dozen years or so, we've bumped right up against the difficulty in making an impact in the industry, but we've done it to a certain extent. It might be tiny, but we've done it. <laughs> okay, so there was one part that you breezed past there, but I think it's fascinating in that <laughs> started to change the genetics of your herd to adapt yeah. to the new way that you were feeding them. You cut out all grains, which is another, yeah. I mean, third rail in, in dairy farming. You would never do right. that. <laughs> and in order for that to be viable, the genetics that are common among dairy breeds of cattle have basically become dependent on the the high grain feed that is common in the industry. And to move away from that, what was that process like? Because it sounds to me like you're essentially working on a land race breeding project for cows. In, in a sense. And, and that was sort of our first knee-jerk reaction, right? Um, so we had a, a group of pretty good organic cows and organic cows tend to not be the very, the, the larger fancy type of cows that you'll find in, at least in the US in confinement dairy production, which again, you know, feed is cheap. So as much you want a cow that will consume as much food as you can give her and make as much milk on the other end. And that's pretty much the extent of the requirements for a cow and you know size comes along with that requirement the organic cows are required to be out on pasture so a stature that allows them to walk around blah 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 there so they were closer they were a little bit more moderate framed but they were still very fragile when it the the, the less grain we um we were able to afford because frankly, and feed, because frankly, it was prohibitive. Um, and so we, we asked ourselves the question, well, what is a cow that just won't die ever look like? Um, you know, something that you just could feed or whatever you could buy. And we have pretty severe winters, you know, not the worst, but not, not friendly either. Um, well below freezing, you know, sometimes 20 degrees below freezing, um, windy, icy. So what does a really rugged cow look like? And is that a thing, right? So we, we found actually what turned out to be a very amazing bull. And he was a purebred milk Devon bull and milk Devons have largely been destroyed as far as their viability in the United States. They were a triple purpose breed, um, but there were a few exceptional, um, you know, examples left. And this happened to be one of them, not really any milk production. They actually had been selected away from milk production because they were more useful in the field as draft animals. That was their turned into their primary use. And they didn't want to have to bother to stop and milk the cow because they were not using the, the, the oxen or they were using the cows too. But anyway, we found this exceptional bull. And so he represented those genetics of just a really tough cow. Um, and we did purchase some purebred milk Devons and their milk production was not enough to be commercially viable. So there's a, there's a, um, an entry level performance to support 
the required infrastructure. You know, we have regulations. We we can't use mobile milking systems. They've got to be in place. They've got to be washable ceiling to floor, center drains. There's a whole lot of regulation around the infrastructure for collecting milk that is has a certain cost associated with it. And so production below, I would say you'd have to do the calculations into liters for European um, folks, but um, somewhere around 7,000 pounds per cow is the threshold. And these cows the really land race, they were down around three, 4,000 pounds, some of them. So about, just about half what I would say is commercially viable. But we started to mix it up and see how, how close we could get, how close we needed to get, and then where we sort of draw the line with your ability to provide enough, really it comes down to enough energy in, an, in a forage only diet to sustain that higher level of milk production. And the fact that, I mean, it was something like 2000 years of selection to develop the Holstein cow, which is a marvel of nature, right? What we've done is absolutely a marvel and should we should all be in awe of the, the capability we've, we've created in cattle. Um, and you should not lose that because it's that difficult to get. Um, we, we learned that lesson as well. Um, there's a reason that that dairy farmers want to hold on to that milk production because once you lose it in your herd, it's very, very, well, it's impossible in your lifetime to get back. But if you're a quick study, you know, within, you can have the same cow and breed her to, you know, four, five, six different bulls, right? Because what you do get with a grass-fed cow is longevity. And you can start to see what works in your forages while you learn how to create enough diversity and energy in forages to produce milk grass-fed because grass-fed milk is not grain-free milk. It is, but you should not think of, think of it that way. You, you need to really fully understand what grains are doing for your cattle and your production and figure out how you're going to replace that or do without those aspects that you can't replace. So, um, give me an example as far as the dietary switch. Yeah. So, um, cornmeal or corn in your, um, in your grain ration does a couple of really important things. Probably the two most important things is it slows digestion and it provides an energy source for the cow. Now, the energy source that it provides, the starches, are also tied to that slow digestion. Um, they're actually also what changes the rumen pH. So there, there's a, an, an external, an externality there that you have to remedy on the one hand. But um, the cows actually prefer sugar as an energy source. If you can feed them sugars, things like sorghum or Sudan grass or some other high sugar forages, you can replace that energy. Um, but you're left with the, those energies are also more quickly obtained. You're left with the, that slowing down the rumen. So if you've got um, corn in the in the cow's diet, and then you've got protein sources like soy or alfalfa, and you've got your nutritionist, they're going to wield all that together, get a lot of milk out of that cow and utilize, you know, 
that's slower to, to actually um, extract all of the things, the milk making things in, in the rest of the diet. But if you take that corn out and you're left with, and the soybeans too, for that matter, if you go grass fed and you say, well, yeah, I'm going to make a lot of milk. I'm, I've got beautiful alfalfa. They're going to milk like a son of a gun and they're going to be dead in two months because you can't feed a cow straight alfalfa, especially one that is genetically predisposed to make a lot of milk she'll just burn, she'll burn right up. It's not, it'll run right through her. She'll zap all of her energy stores. You'll see the flesh come right off her back. And, you know, you, she needs an energy source and she needs a healthy rumen mat. So you need long stemmy forages, um, but the right kind of stem. Um, rye can be, for example, rye can be sort of problematic because of the way the cellulose and hemicellulose cross-link, and then they start to take more energy to break down. So it's really tricky to learn which forages work and which forages, you know, don't, and in what combination. Um, yeah, so that's one example. How and then there's like a, well, hmm? how was that process for you in learning the right composition? It took years. Your it took years. Um, but you know, if you're, if you're paying attention the first time you break out, you know, we've uh, have 50 cows in the tie stall and we're like, this is amazing. We've got a beautiful bale of alfalfa bellage, you know, it's nice, nicely fermented. And the thing about dairy cows is you're grazing and you're feeding. Um, if it's a, if it's a beef herd and you sort of are going in the wrong direction after a week or two, you'll start to, if you're paying attention, you'll start to see these signs in the cows. Dairy cows will tell you in six hours, like you're on a train wreck. So, you know, we fed out this beautiful bale of alfalfa bellage and we came in the next day and it looked like a completely different herd. And we went, okay, time out. And obviously it was very evident in the manure what was going on. And so we changed gears right away. But then the thought process starts about, okay, so what, what really was going on? What happened here? Um, so then we would offer... Um, some nice dry hay alongside the alfalfa. Well, you know, it's, that's like, you know, you've given your, your kids a candy bar for dinner and that didn't work. So the next day next to the candy bar, you know, you, you give them you know, some, uh, some vegetables. Uh, they're not going to eat it. <laughs> They'll eat the candy bar, <laughs> you know, you, you need, so um it didn't take very long to understand the problems, but then how to fix them was a much longer process. So what can we do? What should we be trying to plant in the fields or not? Um, and then how do we manage that? Then grazing is, you know, that that's another, it was another five-year learning curve. Um, that is Alan Savory. Hands down, I've spoken to everybody everywhere. If you are not on board with Alan Savory's holistic plant grazing, then you have not actually studied it and you don't understand it. So I'll leave that there. Um. <laughs> Long statement, but I have gone through all of the trainings to the Savory Institute myself. I'm a big advocate of that as well. Ah, great. <laughs> I mean, I still have, of course, tons and tons to learn. It's a lifelong journey, but I'm curious as to like, where are you at now? With the, I guess the solutions that you found over time, how are you managing your cattle at the moment and how have things changed from where they started? What have been the biggest differences? Yeah. Um, so now our kids are all almost grown or grown. 
they've decided that they are really fulfilled with what we're doing and looks like most, if not all of them want to sort of continue. That was the reason to go from our 50 cows in milk to almost 200 cows in milk. And with that, that was allowed, that was part of the reason we could do that was Maple Hill Creamery decided even at very early that it was going to be a national brand and not a regional or local brand. So making this move into a larger farm fit into this market that we sort of had helped to create. But now we're at a commercial scale that's even bigger. You know, 50 cows grass-fed was huge when we started. Now that's a little below average. And now we're one of the larger farms. And I think we're close to the limit of um, how far we can walk the cows, for example, for pasturing. Um, the pasture component is absolutely necessary because forage is just too costly and bulky to move. The, the you know, a grain is also worked in the industry because it's only 10% water. You know, forages are, you know, much, you get it. Um, so now um, we have a bit more of a traditionally commercial sort of farm um but the the main principles really stay and interestingly enough so we've been we've made five years so far into this transition to a larger farm and we thought well you know this is a bigger scale there's probably some other industry things that were not available to us before that we should probably try maybe we need custom operators maybe we should be putting up haylage instead of baleage had to relearn what we, you know, it, it turned out we were actually very much right on track and maybe we can't raise the calves this way. No, uh, you know, we, we, we need a very biodiverse forage with the plants largely intact to, to give to the cows. We need to raise the calves on their mothers. Um, we need to have our hand in all of the quality of the feed. We need to um, you know, keep selecting my, our oldest daughter, Grace has, um, from a very young age been the, the driver in our breeding program and she selects our bulls. We breed all our own bulls. So we still are very heavily focused on maintaining the right cow. We had to buy a lot of cows to make that expansion. So we relearned a lot of those lessons around, um, the way other people raise cows what type of cows will work, um, which cows we should include in our breeding program and which ones have to stay out. Um, and then on the Maple Hill Creamery side, um, with us, you know, we're sort of representative. As I said, when we started Maple Hill Creamery, 50 cows was a big farm. We had a lot of, we had farms with 10 cows, 30 cows. Um, now I think the average size is 60. And I was just riding um, with, one of the staff members, one of the, on the farm team with Maple Hill Creamery doing some work for Maple Hill Creamery. And one of the farms, the smaller farms is leaving Maple Hill and going to another market. That was an offshoot of Maple Hill Creamery. And she was a little bit sad and I was a little bit sad too. But at the same time, I was really glad because this market came to be, it's actually taking quite a, you know, a handful of farms from Maple Hill Creamery, but it came to be 
when one of Maple Hill Creamery's farmers decided to do it a little bit differently and go even and and go more towards, I guess, where my heart was when Maple Hill Creamery started, which was giving opportunities to those very small farms and keeping the marketing and distribution very, very local and, and regional and not becoming a national brand. And there's this beautiful, beautiful opportunity for these farms that now exists as a consequence of, of what we did, even though now, you know, the, it's sort of pushed that envelope a little bit more towards what exists commercially in Maple Hill Creamery, right? That the realities of trucking costs of milk, you know, sort of came to be. Um, but at the same time, you had this, this happening too. So it's been, um, yeah, it's been, that's where we are now. And we're also actually also really cool working with um, a beef management. We've formed a beef management company because some of the small farms that when Maple Hill Creamery's um, cost of operating sort of made it less profitable for the very small dairy farms, they were ones that really enjoyed grazing. And now we have an opportunity for them to finish beef cattle um, and use their grazing skill and not have all of the other complications of shipping milk. And they're so happy. And if you can produce grass-fed milk, it's um, it's a really nice, you know, you, it's, you're a shoe in for finishing beef. So it's sure, it's sure. Not a very big learning curve from them. So that's, that's sort of where we are. Wow, that's so cool. Like, so this enterprise grew along with your farm and there was quite a connection in between them. I'm also curious as to where you see the upper limits on scale for grass-fed dairy operations. You said that you're probably about at the limit of what you could do as far as size. And you mentioned because it's just a very long way to walk from pasture to the milking parlor. Now, I don't know if you're in favor of changing regulations, making opportunities like mobile milking parlors something that's available. Do you think that this could scale if the regulations were to change? Or are you in favor more of keeping them at a certain size and rather just having a decentralized model where they come together through cooperatives or, or companies like in your case? I think um, I would I would say both and neither in a certain respect, because um, we one of the things we did early on with Tim Joseph was we developed a grass fed standard for third party verification. And we hoped not to have the federal government take it over like um, organic. And to this point, it has not. But we we upped the ante on grazing by a lot. So in the United States, 30% of the cow's dry matter intake has to be direct from pasture um, for 120 days. We are 60% for 150 days. It's a huge difference. Um, and, you know, we might have to go to battle around what direct from pasture means because there are some, there's some leeway to interpret that, that if you go out and mechanically harvest the forages directly from pasture and put it in front of the cows, um, it's not ensiled. It's not right. It's direct from pasture, but that's, but it has so a very different not, impact on the land, right? Yes. And a very different, it does not, uh, it's not in tune with the, this, the true sentiment, right. right. <laughs> and a very different impact on the land. You're right. right. Huge, which is the whole point, right? That was why we did that because that 
that marriage of cattle and and veld of grassland is what is at the base of all of this because we didn't even talk about the mineralization which is the other thing that you get in grain is minerals so that perennial forage is the best way to cycle those minerals so we would want it that i would be sort of in favor of regulation although i guess you could say in general i'm not of maintaining the spirit of that um definition of grass-fed but i would be all for mobile parlors and um because i think we're limited in our size partly because of our topography we have a pretty central milking location so um but if you could move the milking facility then now now the sky's the limit with with dairy herds um and i think that you know the proliferation some of the costs that are prohibitive for the Maple Hill Creamery farmers, the, probably the biggest one is the hauling. And if we had more farms in closer proximity, and when we do, those hauling costs go down and it becomes more efficient. There's still some logistics because the milk truck has to stop more often, but um, even so, the closer they are, the better. So I think if we proliferate the model, that would be fantastic. Um, and yeah, mobile milking systems, I think that would be amazing. And more processors, right? The other thing is we should be able to process. There's there's never enough processing. Yeah. And that's because everybody operates on margins that are so slim, they have to be maximized all the time. And then, you know, any adjustment, any more production just has to go to the wayside because there's no room for it. And mm -hmm. there's never any room anywhere else because they're also operating at their maximum. Yeah, that's tricky. That's... That's tough to have an impact at all of those levels, but uh, it is. So you've done you and your your husband both have done a lot on the the promotion and the regulatory side. And maybe to start before we get into that, I'd love to know what your personal definition of regenerative dairy is, because we kind of mentioned this before we started talking. The term has been co-opted by so many places. It's been thrown around and increasingly kind of neutered from what it many of us hold at our heart of, of this subject. Where do you feel like it's being watered down and what would you like to hold it to as far as standards and ethics? Um, so for me, regenerative dairy has, is, is as I sort of just mentioned, really um, it lies in that interaction of cows creating grass and grass creating cows and milk so that 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 beautiful thing that they do for each other right when the cows graze it's a completely different effect on the grass and the microbiome than when you cut it mechanically um and i think that that and when you you know the larger the herd the more impact you have and the more impact you have the more grass comes behind them and and it it has everything to do with developing those diverse root systems in a perennial forage system that cycles the most life, right? And and creates more life behind it. it it's actually the process that turns sunlight and rain into life forms. And so to me, that's what regenerating is, is creating more life forms on planet Earth um, it's the difference between earth and the moon and other places we have life here and, and life begets life if you do it right. 
Um, and then, you know, you see regenerative agriculture get pulled into um, climate discussions, carbon discussions. Um, and to me, those are completely off the mark because more important is um, our water cycles and carbon cycles are only important because carbon is the common ele element in all life forms. So everything that's alive is a carbon entity. And if we have any conversation or can agree that carbon is in the wrong place, it's because it's not in enough living things. That's where it should be. So um, regenerative agriculture, that sort of gets co-opted by the idea that um, carbon, you know, it's just about sequestering carbon into the soil is just a, it's, it's a side conversation that misses, it's, it's missing the forest for the trees, in my opinion. So things like, well, we're going to add um, cover crops. These are all fantastic things to do. Don't get me wrong. Almost everything that's happening in regenerative agriculture is a good thing. But I think that too often we're missing the point and we need to keep our eye on the ball and we need to keep our eye on the whole thing. And that the water systems are actually more important or at least as important as the, the carbon in the form of life systems that we're talking about. Yeah, but, I definitely agree with that, yeah. Yeah, so when you become, when and most of the carbon accounting has to do with the avoidance of emissions. At right. this point, it's still very heavily in that. Um, and again, that that does not do anything for the creation of life on the planet, and it's a distraction. So anything that has to do with um, supporting that sort of half of the equation, I would say is, again, to me, off the mark. Sure, and to what you were saying about how if the objective is sequestration, you're missing the point that even carbon in the soil is part of a cycle. And that if it is yes. a one-way street, it's not functioning within the ecosystem and being integrated right. within the life cycles that it was meant to be. I, I completely agree. And so yeah. how has that idea informed how you've advocated for and helped to build some of the regulatory frameworks that you've participated in so that it doesn't lose sight of those more important aspects? Yeah, I. Um, so it's just the regenerative ag community is a fairly small community and and I really just beat that drum and I talk about you know I, I try to get some of the people who there's some really wonderful people um, Landcor is one Aria is amazing at helping to write legislation for her own entity and for others and you know she's someone who asks all the right questions and really tries to get at the meat of it and and I just bring that you know when when I'm asked or when I've contributed, I try to remember to bring in um, the that that point itself, and then also that it's the it's the farmers and ranchers and the people that are actually working on the land that need the support in order to do that, and that we need to support them in the right ways. Um, the reason we have high production, you know, as I you know these marvels of nature of modern dairy cows in confinement is because that's what we asked for. We asked for that and they delivered it with flying colors. We need to ask for what we want next. And you will be, your head will spin 
how sh how quickly things will shift. These farmers and ranchers are the most effective people we have on the planet. If we're not getting what we think we want, then we're not asking the right way. We're not giving them the right reasons to do it. So I try to bring that, um, the practicality of it and um, keep a sense of reality to try to um, help some of the people that say, well, then we'll just ask for it. We'll just pay for this. Um, the other side of the equation is, well, you have to you have to understand if that's enough, because here's what's weighing for the other decision. Right. There's always another alternative. And you really have to understand all of the things that are impacting the um, what's keeping them where they are and, and assess whether that's enough. Um, because sometimes, it, you know, just throwing a premium at something, it doesn't address enough of the issue. Um, Absolutely. And I That's really well said. I think that has not come up in these conversations nearly enough when the idealism hits and people talk about how, you know, people, well, let's say those who have very little understanding of all of the complexities and the pressures that primary producers, growers and such are under, like you said, like, oh, we'll just we'll put a premium on these. They'll make more and then they'll they'll move to that incentive. And that's just such a small portion of the pressures that these people are under. And the industry at large is not necessarily like they can assume that small market share and continue to support all of the destructive practices at the same time. Um, it's not one or the other. Right. Right. <laughs> and there's very few of us with the buying power to support those niche markets relative yes. to global population. And it's never going to make up the majority, at least not the way our economy is headed currently. So I think that's yeah. really important to articulate here. Yeah. And yeah, so absolutely. from a, a perspective of regulations, like where do you think the leverage points are? Where can these changes be incentivized for one thing? And also, you know, I, I'm also curious as to whether incentives are enough. Like one of the things that I've noticed is there is a desire from almost all of the producers that I've spoken with and that are members of our communities here of course they want to improve their land. Of course they want to improve the health of their animals. I have never met anybody who doesn't care about those things. Right. But um, they're often wanting to do it despite all of the contrary incentives. I mean, we're using incentives here, whether it's subsidies, whether it's uh, regulation or other. And that if you move that towards doing what they already want to do, somehow it kind of takes the soul out of it. And it starts mm -hmm. to become like, Oh, are you just doing this because you're paid to do it when it really comes from the heart from a lot of these people? Is that something that you've noticed as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, unfortunately, the answer, um, you know, there's some there. I, I'm I wonder whether the answers to those questions uh, are things that people are actually brave enough to do and how much do we really want it? Because on the regulation side, again, the regulations, they come at the end, right? The, the regulations follow all of the other They're stuff. The They're, slowest part to catch up, yeah. They're the slowest part to catch yeah. on. Um, and so what would be necessary also might in, incite mutiny, right? So if you look at Gabe Brown, um, he had four crop failures, complete crop failures in a row. Um, he, he was uh, advised to sell all of his tillage equipment so that he would not be tempted 
to go back that direction and given a new direction, which basically took him 20 years to develop and thrive in, but he did. And he began with small successes right away that enabled him to keep going. But um, he he really needed to be sort of like those crutches were that they were just broken and ha- you don't get those anymore. So a regulation of that magnitude is the only thing that is going to make that sort of a change. And I'm I'm not sure we have the stomach for that. You know, I, it, it would be a complete ban. Um, and then you would have not just farmers going out of business, you'd have seed companies going out of business, you'd have, and it would be just a, a phoenix out of the ashes again would have to come up. And I don't know, that seems like an awfully catastrophic way to change agriculture. And I think that there would be so much collateral damage that, it, you know, probably rightly so, we're not going that direction. Um, otherwise, it's just going to be sort of a, a slow march. So that leaves that the real answer has to be sort of a cultural shift. And I think what people don't realize is that we will get there with more and more small farmers like us making the change, pushing in all different directions to sort of creep into the industry. But organics, organic milk is something like 15% of the milk industry. And then grass fed is only a tiny fraction of that. Um, I don't even think it's 1%. So in the whole scheme of things, yes, we've got a national company. There's lots of people that buy our products. It's 130 farms. It's a significant thing, but it's not a significant thing. And it's not that probably the amount of grass-fed milk and milk products that people consume is a much higher percentage compared to conventional milk products. But the dairy industry is not just milk products, and it's certainly not fluid milk. The milk gets parsed out into so many different ingredients and goes into so many, it goes into the medical field. The cull cows are the basis for the medical industry in so many ways. And so the dairy industry is like mind-blowingly huge. And couple that with, I don't know, in the United States, it's got, it's something like 80% of people eat out regularly. They have no control over the the food that they're picking up at the the pre-made food at the grocery store that they're stopping to get on the way home. You know, it's such a cultural shift to make this. I don't know the the fast way to do it, but that's, that's what really has to change. You know, that's what really has to change. Yeah. I wish I had an answer. I mean, this is the best I can come up with. So I do this. <laughs> it's, it's good. It's good. And I mean, having a viable alternative is so much more powerful than simply protesting or criticizing yeah. the status quo. Yes. Right? That's the lazy way of making change. It's yes. very easy to point out faults. It is the heavy lifting is done when you build a, a viable alternative and advocate for it from experience. And yes. that's something I really respect. Yes, we can certainly turn all of the food that goes direct to consumers. That's the that's the low hanging fruit. Right. So getting into all of the grocery stores and the restaurants and pushing ourselves into those spaces, the 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 hidden stuff behind the curtain that that is also a support for a lot of these industries, because the green industry is the same. Right. There's you know, we're an export. You know, it's an export industry. 
So sure. we have very little control over that. But the stuff that that we do, you know, we can we can just keep pushing, right? Keep pushing our margin, two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back. And and we will make progress. You know, we we I never imagined that we would be able to affect so many different ways, you know, by just really being passionate and um steadfast in what we, we believe was a good entity. <laughs> yeah, <thank you. laughs> um, and it's really now very rewarding to see the different ways that it has seeped in, you know, by just, um, just keeping at it and keep blowing that, that horn and talking to more people and keeping just go, go, go. Um, and, Let's you know, talk about that then. Let's go oh, into yeah. this other work that you're doing outside of the farm, because obviously I know about you through your collaboration with the Bell Group and the Azores with Andre, our mutual friend. And I can only imagine that's one of quite a few projects that you've got your mm -hmm. hands in. So tell me what the rest of this work looks like and the influence you're, you're able to have now. Yeah, um, it started out a bit as repayment for those early, you know, Jerry Brunetti and Gerald Fry and even Alan Savory and, you know, this guy named Buck Chastain and some other local people. So we we joined Tim and Laura way back in 2010 and and we were trying to learn. So we'd bring these folks that had something to say, something to teach and put the word out to local other farmers who were considering getting into dairy farming or dairy farming and we'd have pasture walks and we would you know we'd cook lunch for them and we didn't charge anything for them all the expense was on us you know um but we wanted to learn and we wanted to share and then you know the Corm cornell small farmers journal got wind of what some of the things we were doing i think one of the first ones was the mod you know the um calves on the mother and that we, I dubbed it the Madre method because another um, one of, I think he was Organic Valley's staff veterinarian at the time. And he said, you have to put a name on that. If you don't, I will. So I came up with that. Um, but things like that. And they said, why don't you write an article? So I wrote an article again, you know, just spending my time and submitting it. And, um, and then a few other, as Maple Hill Creamery grew, there's another publication called Gray's Magazine and they reached out, will you write some articles? Not that I had the time to write an article for, you know, most of those publications can't afford, you know, their trade magazines. They, they pay what they can, but honestly, it's, it's never as much as the time that goes into it. And we, we did some of those more pasture walks and then, oh, will you come and speak at the local events? And it just sort of grew. And I just, I, I just, as uncomfortable as sometimes it was all, always, I guess, more rewarding because I kept doing it. Um, and then I would meet more farmers and it would expand the network and we were growing Maple Hill Creamery. So we stayed on and I still am um, on call for all of Maple Hill Creamery's producers for their cow problems, for grazing advice. Um, I helped to write a grant that the USDA put out. They have um, a climate smart partnership. And I, we have a really great staff at Maple Hill Creamery right now. And, and I said, well, let's just, let's throw out a proposal that's super, again, super um, producer friendly and heavy. 
and actually gets to the root of sequestering carbon with our perennial agriculture, because that's what we do. We're not going to do, we're not going to worry about methane and these other things. We just, let's stick to who we are and put a proposal together. And it was one of the first ones they accepted. It got the shortest, the, the least of a haircut when they put it through. And so now I'm helping to um, actually you know, bring that to the farmers and we're doing, so we're, we're paying them for keeping their, their ground in perennial, um, forage. We're paying them for their grazing and their grazing improvement. So they have a baseline payment. And then as their, their pastures improve in biodiversity and things like that, we're giving them another payment. Um, and then we're also paying them for some of the more conventional conservation practices, which, sort of when you bundle a bunch of them together, you can approach regenerative. So we're, we're encouraging that. Um, and then um, I've got, there's a, um, a restaurant, Blue Hill here, Dan Barber's place is um, piloting some stuff and I've helped them develop that project with, um, uh, and working with their, their research team. Um, I'm all this beef program, man, a beef management company that's now looking for places to finish beef. So we've been able to aggregate and put together um, feeders and stockers in the a, a few states south and bring them up into our markets. Um, what else? Yeah, so I just, um, oh, Grassfed Exchange, I'm going next week and keynote at the Grassfed Exchange. And uh, yeah, some of the um, organic associations occasionally still have us come and speak. Um, but that's, it's turned into a lot of different, um, a lot of different opportunities to work with markets now markets. Oh, there's, yeah, there's a couple other ones too, but, um, yeah, I think our hallmark is to, to always bring that, um, practical piece, uh, and the farmer's perspective into what, you know, there's a lot of interest in agriculture right now and it's yeah. not all, uh, comes from a place of deep understanding. So we try to bridge that gap. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's marvelous work. I know how important that is right now to, to offer these alternatives, uh, viable methods that buck the trend of, you know, these poor practices that have got us here, unfortunately, and show that not only can you make a living this way, but there are so many run on benefits beyond that as well. And yeah. I'm curious because you had mentioned like ultimately this is going to take a change in culture to yeah. see this implemented at scale uh, or to become the new normal. How can people who are not actively farming contribute to this shift in culture from from what you can see? Um, I think I see it starting already, and that is to do a lot more work to learn about the basis for your health and happiness because what we've moved away from are natural foods in their natural state and a connection with the outdoors and the earth itself so getting outside and um, understanding that the soil is not just a medium right it's not just a petri dish that we like sprinkle different things in, in, you know, a seed and a fertilizer and get it to grow. Um, and understanding a little bit better um, 
that <laughs> actually everything you do really does make a difference. Um, those those are the things that I that I think need to continue to change and that I see changing. I see, and maybe it's just because of the way I'm sort of profiled on social media, but I see more information about people growing their their own food and trying to get into a little bit of agriculture. It's a hard leap to sustain yourself, even with a pretty decent sized homestead. So there's always going to be um, the need for some commercial level of farming, even if everybody decided that they wanted to homestead. And once people start to produce for themselves, they start to be really picky and choosy about the things that the other things that impact their life. Um, but I would say first step is make sure that you are preparing your own food. I think if that happened, if everybody was really in charge of either themselves or someone very close to them is preparing their food, then, mm -hmm. then that would be a big first step. And then obviously look to where that those ingredients are being sourced. Yeah. 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 Any step towards a closer to connection to the natural world that sustains you and your community and how many different ways you are dependent and interconnected on those, I think is a, any step in that direction is a positive one and will get us closer to where we're trying to be. Yeah, I think I would add to that. Um, don't make the mistake necessarily of um, boycotting any particular um, type of agriculture. I, I think mm -hmm. every everyone underestimates the interconnectedness that we have, and the reason I can, I can't farm without tractors still right in order to be commercially viable. If we're gonna unless we're going to have that catastrophic shift that's going to have all kinds of collateral damage, we're going to have to turn the barge slowly. And so um, my milk production is going to go to a level that's not going to really support an industry that's going to be able to bring you my milk if I shrink too quickly. Right. So there's, there is a system in place where you can still go to your local grocer you know, small, I shop at a small mom and pop in, in Cooperstown. It's just, a, you know, a husband and wife and their son, and they source all of the produce locally. They buy the, um, you know, this other farmer that I've talked about, who's taking the other farms from Maple Hill, they have his products and they're very focused on local, but they need to carry so many other things that they are able to get because there's a national food distribution system that also has a truck going to Whole Foods and they would not be able to afford getting those products. So I would not be able to afford a tractor in the same way that, you know, if those other huge farms that have 10 zillion tractors didn't exist, the parts that I need to get needs to be part of an industry. So if we're gonna make changes, which we I agree we should make, just understand that if you ask for the complete elimination and a, a and sort of a hatchet approach to saying we don't want any GMOs, we don't want any mass produced anything, then you're going to be in for changes in ways that you. It's not just going to be well. I'll I'll limit myself to my local production. I don't mind yeah, not no. buying things that are that are mass produced those changes in the mass production are going to change the entire system, including the ones that are produced locally. So be just be aware that we should not be condemning 
you know, in, in holistic management, we have a mantra, manage for what you want. Don't worry about the, the consequences necessarily yeah. that that are happening. Push for the things that you do want and let those naturally cannibalize the unwanted consequences until you eventually land at a place where you only have what you want. Yeah, and just because it is an artificial or human-made system does not mean it's not interconnected with all of the other ones that you want to promote as well. That's a very well uh, well put. Yeah. I think that's a, a really good thing to keep in mind when when you don't understand the intricacies of an industry that you only see the demonization of on Netflix documentaries. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, look, that's a really good place to put a bookmark into it right now. I have so many other things that I would love to explore with you. Perhaps we could do another session in the future. <laughs> but uh, I really appreciate you taking time today and shedding light on an industry that is poorly understood and showing that there are some real reasons to be hopeful and potentials for transforming this in a time period that is far more acceptable than even I realized before understanding what you guys are pioneering. Thank you so much. This was really a lot of fun. <laughs> it really was. Thanks once again to Phyllis. I've included links in the show notes for this episode on the website where you can learn more about her work and get in touch. Now, before we wrap this up, just remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the learning resources, design and coaching services, in-person courses, and interactive community that are available through Regenerative Skills. The Discord server is our free community where you can connect with other like-minded listeners, exchange ideas, stories, tips, and resources, as well as interact with me directly and quite a few former guests from this show. Our Instagram account, at regen underscore skills, is the best place to see the projects that me and the team are working on, both for clients and collaborators, as well as on our own properties. I'll also be announcing the certification courses, workshops, and gatherings that we've got coming up later this year. If you're interested in getting dedicated support for your own project, you can now schedule a free planning session with one of our team members through the request form on our website. You can also find all the links, show notes, and past resources there at regenerativeskills.com. We truly believe that no matter your experience, your knowledge, abilities, resources, or background, you can be a powerful force for regeneration on this planet, and we're here to help you find your path. So as always, remember to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.